the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Tired of the negative news and flash over substance? It's time for Today with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy Patrick is a trial attorney, patriot, and Ph.D. with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines, streamlined news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Good evening and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick and as always, my co-host Larry Dersham and I want to welcome you to another exciting edition of our show where we always have very interesting special guests. And we're going to start with a very special guest tonight. Larry, who do we have on the line? Uh, Yes, Wendy, I'd like to introduce Anthony Tremino. He is running for governor for the state of California and The primary is coming up here on June 7th. He'll talk a little bit more about that shortly. His grandparents came from communist Cuba. They fled Castro's revolution. He was born in Torrance, California. He's currently CEO of Traffic, which is an advertising agency. And he's just a tremendous person. I have went to his website and I've heard him talk and he's, he's an amazing guest. So welcome to the show, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Excited to be talking with you today. So it's interesting. Uh, I'm fascinated with your grandparents fleeing communist Cuba. That is really has to be a story. Uh, but they came here and started a better life. I mean, they rolled up their sleeves. They started a small business. I understand that still exists today. And you apparently have followed in their footsteps. You are a very successful businessman. So with that background, what led you to enter politics and then decide to run for governor? Yeah, so that story right there is really the foundation for why I decided to run. So you got to imagine my grandfather flees communist Cuba, comes to the United States to pursue the American dream. Well, I think we can all agree the American dream is on life support right now, especially here in California. And then being an entrepreneur himself and then me becoming an entrepreneur, starting a small business, um, I understand what it's like to own a business in California and how California is driving out manufacturing, driving out big business, small business. So when I think about, you know, the environment that I currently live in as a business owner, as a father, as somebody who has roots in a communist country, I started to look around and say, you know, uh, we need to leave this place. We need to get out of California. I started having conversations with my wife saying, we need to go to Florida like so many other people have. Uh, and she dug her heels in and she said, no, we're going to stop and you're going to think about what we're leaving behind. And as I started to think about all the things that we would be leaving behind, I, you know, I just imagined running out of a burning building. I didn't really think I was leaving much behind. And, you know, God opened my eyes as well as my wife. And I realized that I wouldn't just be leaving California, but I'd be leaving so much more behind. My mom, my dad, siblings, nephews, nieces, our church, employees, our entire way of life. And then I started to think, you know, I have five wonderful children, four biological, one adopted. And I started to think, what would it be 
my kids. If just because things got bad, you just up and left. So just because we could leave doesn't mean that we should leave. And so we decided to stay and fight. Um, that fight for us looked like a run for governor, not because I want to be a politician, because I don't, but because I do not believe that politicians are going to come and save us. Anthony, uh, this kind of a, these are broad questions, but what would you say are the three biggest issues facing California today? Sure. Depending on who you ask, right? Because there are so many, there, it's a hotbed of topics. But I'll tell you that the three most vocal groups across California, number one, it's the attack on our children. So it's parents that are angry, moms that are angry about what's happening with CRT, gender studies, um, mandates, vaccine, uh, masks, all of that. So you have one category of this attack on the family unit, um, which, which is kind of waging war at our schools. You have crime, people leaving our state in a mass exodus because they no longer feel safe. And you have homelessness. Um, we are becoming quickly the homeless capital of the United States. So those three things, crime, homelessness, and really the attack on the family unit are really the three topics that I get asked about most and I speak about most. You know, the homelessness topic is one that's on everybody's mind. And we obviously know that California has good weather and we can imagine that's part of the rationale, part of the reason, part of the motivation, if you will, that so many people come here. But if you had to be specifically asked how you're going to address the homelessness situation that's different than it's being addressed now, maybe, you know, out of the box solutions or tried and true solutions, what would you say and how would you really summarize how your approach to solving homelessness would be different? Sure. Three, three ways. So right now, the, um, the administration in Sacramento has about $200 million worth of payroll um, for people they hired to fix the homeless problem. So day number one, we fire all those people because they're not doing their job. We take those funds and re reallocate them into a two-part solution. Number one, what we do is we activate the nonprofit and church-based community that are already doing this work. They have feet on the street. They're already tending to the mental, social, spiritual needs of the people that are homeless. And so we basically allocate funds, get behind them, stand behind them, create an infrastructure so that they can coordinate and collaborate. And then we do the second part, which is just as critical. We allow our police officers to be police again. So there are, there are many people that are homeless that are there committing crimes that are there illegally, but police officers are not allowed to do their job. And then we don't prosecute crime either. So if we allow police to do their job, we prosecute crimes, and then we deal compassionately with those that need mental health or drug abuse um, rehabilitation through the nonprofits and the churches, we solve the problem. Uh, Tony, how would we fix California's education? And we have the critical race theory being taught uh, through mathematics and in history classes and so forth. We have the comprehensive sexuality education, which is really kind of taken uh, that uh, subject area away from the parents, and it's pretty radical. And then we even have the gender uh, transitioning thing that's coming into the school. How would you fix their education? And they don't seem to be teaching math or history because we're like at the bottom of the list almost if you compare us to other states. How would you fix it? Sure. A, a couple of different ways. Number one, we need to bring civics back into our schools so that people understand the Constitution, why it was written, how it was written, the intent for which it was written. But really how we fix those issues that you're talking about, we make critical race theory and gender studies illegal to be taught in the state of California. If you think about this, if all three of us were to go out into the street right now, pull a 12-year-old child aside, 
and start talking about gender or sexuality, we would all be arrested. But for some reason, we've made that kind of conversation legal in our classrooms. So we would we would not only ban it, but make it illegal. And then ultimately, what we need to do is rethink the entire curriculum and structure of our school systems. We need to advocate for uh, school choice, putting power back into the parents' hands. We need to dismantle the teachers' unions. And then we need to create leadership academies out of our high schools so that we're sending our 18-year-olds into the workplace equipped to succeed, being financially literate, um, through a masterclass program that uh, we can talk about at another time, but that I have ideas for. So that's how we fix the, the public school system. You know, we talk about the public school system more and more, it seems nowadays, with all of the issues that are coming up across the country. Um, and as you talk about that in specific relation to California, you know, some quote these statistics that say the least educated state in America. And uh, I know that part of the, I guess part of what's hard to believe for a lot of parents is how did we get to a position where that would even be arguably true if you're looking at statistics? And so I guess let me just start with, is that true? And if so, you know, talk about reversing trends. How did we get here? How did we get to the place we are in California where we're at the bottom of the barrel with regards to education? Is that the question? Well, first, I want to know, is that actually true? And then secondly, it would be interesting to know how we got here because your plan is to get us out. <laughs> yeah, so it, it's absolutely true. We rank um, fourth from the bottom in the United States with regards to testing. So it, it's true. Um, and how did we get here? Well, there are a lot of theories as to how we get here, but I'll tell you why we remain here. We have an administrative, uh, an administration. So if you think about California, it's 61% minorities, right? And minorities, the minorities in California and Hispanic community tend to, to vote, um, you know, uh, left. And what's happening is what we're seeing is we're seeing governments continuing to keep the minority communities dependent on government help. So when you see stimulus checks and when you see um, you know, increase in unemployment and, and, and continuing to allow for unemployment. We're basically incentivizing people not to work, to be dependent on the government. And so how do you perpetuate that generation after generation? It's you limit the education system. And you basically, because we all know knowledge is power, right? So if you educate a generation, not only on the constitution, on their rights, but also how to succeed in life, they're less likely to depend on the government. So the government right now enjoys its place because of the chaos they created by allowing our school systems to decline in the way that they have. I've looked at the uh, the, the ballot, this one, this election that's coming up in uh, June 7th. There's a lot of competition out there. First of all, how because we are getting a little bit short on time for this segment. Very uh, short on time. Yeah. Uh, how would people find out about you? How could they support your campaign? Sure. June 7th, an important date. It's the primaries, only two candidates advance. And so how you can find out more about what we're doing is to get involved through anthonytermino.com. That's anthonytermino.com. You can volunteer there. You can donate there. You can also get a full calendar of where we'll be speaking. Stay connected with us on social media. Um, and that's, that's how you can get involved and activated. This is arguably the most important race in the country this year, the governor's race for California. So be educated, equip yourself with knowledge, get behind a candidate, and please, please, please vote. 
I like that. You end up, you end with maybe the most important thing people can do with whatever views they have is get to the ballot box and vote. Thank you so much for joining us. We really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. All right. We need to take a very short commercial break, but please don't touch that dial. We have a lot more lively content on the other side. You're listening to Today with Dr. Wendy. We're back in a flash. News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamline. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Welcome back to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick, and we are going to continue our show with some very lively and timely discussion. What are we gonna talk about? You guessed it, the lifting of the mask mandate for public transportation. Now, many of you saw this coming. I mean, many of you probably back in early 2021 thought, since when does the CDC even have the authority to impose this kind of a federal mask mandate? But we dutifully put on the masks and traveled by planes, trains, and automobiles, and. It maybe would have been more comfortable if we could breathe a little better, um, but we did it. We complied. But this week, everything changed. This ruling from a federal judge in Florida came by surprise to a lot of people, really caught a lot of people off guard, thinking that all of a sudden this is going to be dropped. And it was. And the TSA even dropped the mask mandate. So a federal judge decided the CDC had exceeded its authority, overstepped the bounds of what it was permitted to do. And many people collectively breathed, uh, operative word, a sigh of relief. And I have to say, Larry, you know I love to travel. One of those collective groups were flight attendants because they were no longer having to be the airplane police. Finally, it was wheels up, masks down. And you saw a viral video across the country of pilots making that announcement mid-flight. Uh, to the to applause and and other people that were just you know just thrilled. Now here's the caveat: there are many people that still will decide to mask because it's more efficient for them to make sure they stay safe. They may be immunocompromised. They protect family members, or it's their own personal choice. Great, good for them, and I would hope that we would respect that choice. For everyone else, we've watched closely this appeal that was taken by the Department of Justice this week. And here's the interesting thing about this appeal, Larry, and I'm sure. Um, I'll kind of give the silver lining version, then I'm sure you're kind of going to have some um, more heavy, heavy hitting analysis politically. But as a practical matter, masking isn't popular on both sides, at least not among people that don't have an underlying medical condition that are fully vaccinated and boosted and immunity, whatever it is, they would probably rather not, they'd probably rather not have to wear a mask. So the popularity level of remasking or asking for an instituted remasking is probably not high. And we know the president has other irons in the fire in terms of other things he's working on and probably, you know, at least thinks about the fact that his popularity numbers could be higher. However, I want to say that legally, this appeal is not arguably about popularity. It's about power. It is about restoring to the CDC or at least arguing that they should have 
the ability to make this kind of a mandate because who knows what kind of variants we may be facing in the future. That's the argument. We may have another Omicron. We may have another instance where hospitalizations begin to rise as they already have in certain parts of the country. So it's about giving the CDC back or at least arguing that they should have the power to to have this mandate. Now, Larry, risky. Here's the risk. The appeal would go to the conservative 11th Circuit Court, which may side with the Trump appointed judge that decided this case. What then? Now you have some precedent. And then if it went to the U.S. Supreme Court, you would have precedent there, maybe for all the same reasons. That's a 6-3 conservative majority as well. So maybe I start by sort of asking you your thoughts on why? Why take that risk when you do already see the ideological bent, at least, of the people seated on the courts where this is headed? Well, they're taking the risk, I think, because they're just hoping... Uh, I guess against hope that the higher courts will come out in favor of the CDC. But you mentioned the word control, Wendy, and it was just this week, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki at a White House briefing, I think it was on Wednesday, before the Department of Justice admitted that they're taking the appeal because they want to keep the control in the CDC. It seems like it's all about control over there. And it's not only the government that's doing that. It's also, I consider it the left and the globalists, the oligarchs, they love control. And uh, there was a, like you said, the celebration on on all the planes, but there's other people on the left media. I picked up some tweets and so forth. This person named Robin Given of the Washington Post, she said, uh, when she saw this uh, uh, film footage of the people celebrating on the plane, she says, whoops of selfish delight. And there's other people saying, oh, this is this is bad. But, you know, th- you you go against what we've all seen. Uh, the thing about the mask, I just picked up on a rumble video because it's pretty well censored on the other social media sites of a doctor, Ted Noel. He's an anesthesiologist and he put on all these different masks and he took a vape they call them vape pens and he blew out the smoke and it just came out all the sides and through the mask. He he did, tried cloth masks, other types of masks. And it's just, and, and the particle size of that smoke is a lot larger than the COVID. So it doesn't really make sense to me. It all goes back to control, but going back to your original question, I think that the government is hoping that the higher courts will give the control back to the CDC. And I don't think they're trustworthy at this point. That's my opinion. Well, you know, the interesting thing about that and the word I used was power is the CDC didn't have that power is what the judge said. A lot of legal analysts are attacking the court's ruling by saying, well, she was really talking about sanitation and she missed the mark on using that analysis. But there was probably much more there, I suppose, that both sides can argue. However, we have a little civics lesson built into this dilemma, this ruling, this controversy, and that is that the United States gives most of the responsibility for public health measures to the states, at least in large part. Part of the reason there is, you know, they're probably in the best position to look at their communities and say, well, bed space here is at a premium where, as we all know, uh, we didn't feel this in San Diego, but there are places around the country that never really went into lockdown because they hardly had any cases. They're already so socially distanced in rural areas. They're spread out. And so they didn't have to have the kinds of control measures, uh, to use your terminology, that they did in New York City or San Diego or L.A. 
But what's interesting about that, Larry, is wouldn't that be a reason, at least to make the argument, that municipalities and cities and jurisdictions and states should be in the best position to decide what's best for their residents? Because we do want to protect uh, our health and we want to protect the health of all of our community members, especially the ones that are immunocompromised. So why should a federal agency be in the best position to do that? So the reason I always ask, you know, why would they run the risk is I'm wondering upon what basis they see a path forward that is successful. Now, I, we're going to be watching this, you know, very carefully. So I'm sure we'll we'll learn a little bit about that. But here's something else that I think is interesting for our travelers out there that have been following this was with much interest. Over the course of just this past week, we have seen the city of Philadelphia, just I'm mean, use them as an example, institute then rescind a mask mandate. We saw LA who didn't have one, who had already rescinded it, reinstitute. So in other words, there doesn't seem to be the kind of logical tie-in between what happens federally and what happens statewide, except to say, if you're traveling for spring break, know that. The mask mandate has been officially lifted by the TSA and cannot be legally enforced unless the administration wins the appeal. And we all know the wheels of justice turn slowly. Larry, back to you. Yeah, I've got a couple. And I agree with everything you just said there, Wendy. Uh, right on point. I uh, wanted to bring up another topic here. And it's I call it the slippery slope, the infanticide bills. And I just say, kill the bill, not the baby. Uh, bills are starting to appear to legalize infanticide. And where does it stop once we go down that route? Will old people be next? Uh, in New York, back on January 22nd, 2019, they passed the Reproductive Health Act, which allowed the, um, the termination of a baby up to the point just before, the moment before it, uh, it uh, emerged and was born. There are 19 states now that have infanticide for babies who survive abortion. So if there's an attempted abortion, the baby survives. There are 19 states. That's almost, um, that's a lot of states that allow them to just basically leave the baby there to uh, expire on its own without any medical help. And the most dangerous one here is uh, California. It's AB Bill 2223, that's 2223. Now, Newsom, our governor, he established the Future of Abortion Council last year. He wanted to make California a sanctuary state. Well, part of that package was the AB 2223, and it allows for the termination of a baby during the perinatal period. Now, that period goes from the 28th week of gestation to the 28th day after birth. So up to 28 days after that baby is born, the baby can be terminated. And that is really crossing the line. There were a lot of people, I would say several thousand people that went up to a hearing this week, Wendy, and I I watched it on... um, the broadcast, and they just allowed people to come up to say, my name is such and such, and I'm against this bill. They wouldn't allow really any comment. And then, of course, the uh, heavily weighted in the Democrats' favor uh, committee, the health committee, voted to pass that on. Now, there's still a chance to reverse that. We have to fight that. Uh, it's it, There's other states. Maryland is in the running, too, to do this. It's like they're racing to eliminate our kids kids that are born already and if we cross that line if life is no longer sacred where do we draw the limit on a a postpartum abortion could that go all the way up to age 80 and anything in between 
So that's that's on my heart, and I just pray that people will call their legislators and and tell them to vote against AB twenty two twenty three. You know, the issue in general is on the hearts and minds of people in in many different states, as we've seen just a a, a lot of litigation of, against a lot of bills and a lot of ideas have been floated all across the country and. So it really is like never before, Larry. I mean, in the last 20 years, we're talking about it, I think, more within this last year than ever. So um, you're absolutely right. People have to really take a to look at what's percolating in their states. But I'm going to end this on a happy note. And I'm going to end this uh, by saying thank you for joining us. We hope you have a wonderful, safe weekend. Regardless of where you stand politically, ideologically, we are very happy you were able to spend some time with us. And we want to hope that you join us again next week. Headlines with a silver lining. Have a great one. God bless you. Thank you for joining us for Today with Dr. Wendy. You can learn more about Dr. Wendy and how to become a guest or sponsor of the show by visiting wendypatrickphd.com. That's wendypatrickphd.com. Tune in every week at this same time as Dr. Wendy will engage and inspire you with an upbeat viewpoint on the highlights of the day. This has been Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.